Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Hey, you guys, this episode of Other People is brought to you by Audible, the world's leading provider of digital audiobooks. Over at audible.com, there are hundreds of thousands of titles to choose from in a wide range of genres. And you can play them on just about any digital listening device, whether it's your iPhone, your Kindle, your Android, you name it. And here is the deal, everybody. Right now, for listeners of this program, Audible is offering a free audiobook download with a free 30-day trial. Go get some William Faulkner. Go get Wild by Cheryl Strayed. Get some Dostoevsky. Or how about something by David Foster Wallace. Just about any book at Audible can be yours, free of charge, and if you do this, if you go get the freebie, it helps the program. I get a few pennies. That is enjoyable. To download your free audiobook, just go to audibletrial.com slash other people. Again, that's audibletrial.com slash other people. This is a wonderful deal. It is available right now. These are books. You can listen to them. Go and get them. Oh, my God. You are not alone. You have found other people. You and I have a friend in common. Every stupid thing that a writer could do, I've done. I think it's really beautiful. Dude, dude, what a struggle, you know? It was incredible, you know, it's like your head exploded seeing what was really there. And now here's your host, Brad Listy. Just one person at just one time. All right, everybody, here we go again. This is it. This is other people. This is totally invisible. This is currently keeping you company. Thank you for being here. My name is Brad Listy. I'm reporting to you live from the uh, desert wasteland of Southern California, Los Angeles, California. It is a city that probably should not be here. There is greenery somehow. There is flora somehow. There is fauna somehow. There is water somehow. All of it has been imported and somehow lacquered over what is otherwise a dry desert wasteland. And on a related note, just the other day, I was working on my book, this novel that I uh, talk about from time to time on this program. Uh, it's a darkly comic novel that uh, features a beleaguered protagonist, a bitter man, a beleaguered man. And I was writing this passage where the beleaguered protagonist talks about Los Angeles, and I figured that I would share it with you. Here it is, folks, a sneak preview. Are you ready? Los Angeles was a toxic mirage. Every inch of real estate paved over and devoured. The water piped in from the hills. The 10,000 homeless wandering the streets every night like a pack of forgotten zombies. The women with their fake white teeth and their yoga couture. The men with their designer sunglasses and their stupid luxury cars. An empire built on shifting sand. A boneyard full of dreams. 
The ocean winds blew and the remnants of dead dreams swirled up and around you and entered your lungs like a virus. You breathed them in like a goddamn fool and became a walking dead dream yourself. So there you have it, folks. There it is. There's an excerpt, uh, a little ray of sunshine for you, something to cheer you up and make your day a little bit brighter. I should note that I've been using that applause sound effect a little bit too often lately. Uh, I apologize for that, and I recognize that it is a little bit compensatory. Hey, everybody. If you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. My guest today is Matthew Bott. Matthew Bat. Matthew Bott, I believe is how it's pronounced. I like to call him Matthew Bat. Uh, I especially like to call him Matt Bat, as do many people. He is the author of a memoir called Sugar House, which tells the harrowing story of how he renovated both his life and a Salt Lake City crack house at the same time. Uh, I bet you want to hear about that, don't you? I bet you do. I bet you do. I'm in my uh, office at the University of St. Thomas, uh, which is on the west side of St. Paul, um, perched right up there on the, the banks of the Mississippi, actually. Um, and it's one of those rare, like, completely, you know, kick-ass Minnesota days where, you know, nobody else can really compete, but we only get, like, three of them a year. So. <laughs> yeah, my, um, wi- my wife is from Minnesota, so I've spent some time up there, you know. And, oh, I, nice. and I, I was actually there uh, in the spring uh, for a weekend for my mother-in-law's birthday and it was beautiful weather. Like it was perfect. Oh, cool. Yeah. So I, you know, it's great when you hit it on a good, a good stretch. It's true. When we get it right, it's really right. But then, you know, there are the other 340 days. <laughs> so what yeah. brought you there? I mean, that's not where you're originally from, is it? Right. No, I'm from Milwaukee more or less. I was born in Colorado, but only lived there for like three weeks. And, um, you know, nobody asked my input on the move. So, yeah. I was, bo- I, I, was, I was born in Milwaukee, so I lived there for like the first eight years of my life. Oh, nice. Well, probably not a bad place to spend eight years, but probably after age 21, it becomes a decidedly better place. But uh, I mostly have memories of, you know, like getting chased by, you know, dudes on BMX bike with like screwdrivers, you know, <laughs> yeah, right. like the sons and daughters of shop teachers, you know, just vaguely trying to assault me and all my friends. <laughs> so what part of uh, what part of Milwaukee were you in? Uh, just west of Milwaukee County proper. So I grew up in um, New Berlin is how it said. Um, it's, uh, it's just west of West Allis. And incidentally, there is no East Allis. Okay, um, yeah. I remember West Allis. I, I grew up in Cedarburg. I don't know if that rings a bell. Yeah, it does. Actually, I spent... Um, God, 
actually, I spent the first, what, um, we moved to the north side of Milwaukee. Um, when, when we first moved there, I just lived in an apartment building um, near like Southridge Mall. And then my mom got remarried and we moved up to uh, Grafton, actually, which is just north of Cedarburg. Yeah, sure. Yeah, I grew up, I mean, riding my bike over there and everything. Sweet. Yeah, I, uh, I, I still remember being devastated by moving from from Grafton. Um, I think in part because <laughs> on the way to New Berlin, um, my mom, you know, she's a florist and sweet hippie lady. She drove a, you know, like a, a VW micro van or whatever they were called. Um, and, uh, you know, unlike German engineering today, the doors were just randomly open. Um, and, and I actually fell completely out of the, the front seat when I was, you know, I think I was like seven at the time. Um, my grandparents were driving behind us, helping us move. And, you know, it was, it was an adequate amount of horror for, for everybody involved. Well, yeah. And I mean, it's, it's not the greatest car to have in the winter in Wisconsin either, I would imagine. No. And what, what's hilarious is my mom should have totally known better because, um, she, one of her epic, like, you know, young adult stories is when she, uh, um, went to college. I think, didn't you spend some time in, in Indiana? Don't I have that right? Yeah, Indiana, Colorado. We're hitting them all. But yeah, like uh, I went to high school in Indiana and junior high, and then I went to college in Colorado. So Nice. Well, that's, yeah. I mean, we're, hey man, we're practically family at this point. <laughs> right. My, uh, so my mom went, she, she did her first couple years at DePauw in Greencastle, Indiana. Uh-huh. Um, Tiny school. Which, yeah, tiny school, totally Greek. Um, ended up being a really hateful experience for her. Um, and she transferred to University of Colorado. Um, and when she was, I think, like in the middle of winter is how I remember it. Um, but anyway, she she drove from Indiana to, to Boulder in her, you know, like 1969 VW Bug. Um, and, you know, it was like two degrees or something the whole way. And with the engine being in the rear of those cars, she had no heat the entire time. Oh. You know, she still has all her toes, but you wouldn't <laughs> think the way she talks about it. Wow. So she, and you said she was a sweet hippie lady. I mean, I guess it sort of sounds like this penchant for Volkswagens and, uh, you know, the mission out to Boulder, but she, you know, she, she continued to be a hippie even as she got into like her adult years. Yeah, definitely not, you know, a semi-professional hippie. Um, I mean, she, she was, uh, went into the floral industry and all of that and, um, was hippie enough to never be successful at the business end of it. But, you know, uh, I mean, she's spent her whole life just being a flower lady. Yeah. What is it about? Like, that's actually interesting. Like, what is it about having uh, like hippie tendencies, which I, sl- I somewhat do. I have some sympathy there. You know, like I spent I, I spent like a year and a half of my life as a hippie um, right. and it was a great year and a half, you know, in a lot of ways. I had fun. But it was like when I was in college and I was, um, you know, in Colorado or whatever. But then you, you talked about, like, you know, uh, the business end of things. Like, it, it does seem to, to sort of uh, go hand in hand, doesn't it? That if you have hippie tendencies, you're probably not going to be um, uh, a superlative business person. I guess there are exceptions, but, I mean, maybe not. I don't know. That, that seems to ring true Good to me. Question. Makes, <laughs> yeah, makes, it, makes me worry about myself. <laughs> yeah, I think in general, you know, like a lack of soap and a, an abundance of malfeasance tend, tend to go with hippiedom. Um, which, you know, um, or just a lack of killer instinct or something, you know, I think so. And, you know, for my mom, and it was just, it was always so sad to see, cause you know, she, she's super good at her job and a really good, um, florist. Um, but you know, I mean, the profit margin on that industry is like less than 1% to begin with. And then you add in somebody who 
has a tendency to you know give product away. Uh, <laughs> that that does not increase the profit margin, sadly. Yeah, yeah. And then uh, what about your dad? What was what was what was he doing? Um, that's one of those weird sort of contemporary American questions, right? It's like which dad? Um, like. So my biological dad, um, he and my mom met in, in Colorado at, at you know uh, UC or however you say it, CU, right? Yeah, CU. Um, and uh, got married and you know had me, and apparently I was. It, they could tell from day one that you know my dad didn't need any of that, so he bailed when I was. I know the number three is involved, but I don't know if it was three days, three weeks, or three months. <laughs> um, so anyway, um, and you know we're in some kind of touch these days but uh i still he lives in alaska um so i pretty much only see him you know every three years or something yeah um and then my mom got remarried when i was uh seven um to um, the guy who gave me my um unfortunately well depending on how you ask um you know apparently rhyming name um john bott was my adopted dad and my my biological name was Knowles. Um, which, you know, doesn't appear funny at all. Um, <laughs> and then I don't think they ever thought it through, like, you know, having John Bott, but it, it, you know, looks just like that. So, and give that to me and, you know, uh, well, hence the... Well, no, I thought it was Bat. I'm glad you said that. I mean, it's, I, I was like initially looking, I was thinking that it was Matthew Bat. And, and, and in fact, there's something, there's some part of me that's a little heartbroken that it's Bot. You know, <laughs> you know my, my agent has threatened my life. Like if I, <laughs> if I tell people... Um, but it, it just seems a little disingenuous. Um, I don't know. Actually, I remember, um, God, it was like, it was a long time ago, um, in, in Boston, I was visiting a friend and, um, a mutual friend of his was, was John Hodgman. Um, only then he was, you know, like a literary agent, um, although mostly hating being a literary agent, if I remember correctly. What, Hod- Hodgman was a literary agent? Yeah. I didn't, um, why did I not know that? I don't think he was very good at it. Oh, okay. okay. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know. But... I might have queried him. He could have rejected me years ago. Who knows? It's possible. He seemed good at it that night anyway. And um, I remember he, you know, I, I was introduced to him, and he's like, wait a second, your last name is what? And your first name is huh? And then I explained the, you know, Matt Bot. And he's like, no, it's not. You are never telling anyone again. It is Matt Bat. You are sticking with it. <laughs> no Matthew, no Bot. Forget it. It's Matt Bat. Um, and it's been this like enduring, you know, sort of crisis. Uh, but whatever, you know. Yeah. Well, no, I mean, it is. I mean, it is catchy. You got to. You got to admit. You know. I do. Um, I, it's uh, it's unfortunate though. It's like it. You know, nobody ever hears it and thinks like, "Wow, this is somebody." You know, it's significant here. This is this is going to matter. Whatever happens next. Um, yeah, I, so, I sort of feel that way about my name. There's something insignificant about anyone named Brad. It's just a terrible name. I think I've, I've talked about this on this show before, and and I've actually written about it. I think too, but um, I've always had sort of a love uh, or mostly a hate hate relationship with my name. Nice. Yeah, I remember your your conversation with with Steve Allman was when when you you got to thinking about names for some reason. Oh, is that when it was? Yeah, I mean, I just you know, it just uh, it's one of those things. I feel like certain names, uh, you know, uh, kind of work well for whatever profession you happen to be in. And so, from a literary perspective, uh, there are certain names that you you read and you're like, oh, of course, you know, of course, this person right. is is fancy, you know, or whatever it is. And um, I don't know. I feel like there's something to that, and it's almost like. 
here's another conversation that I've had on this show before, and I forget who it was with. Maybe it was David Reese, and we were talking about phone numbers and the aesthetics of phone numbers. Oh, sweet. And how certain phone numbers just sound good phonetically and also have a certain visual look that appeals, uh, which I totally understand. Like, I, I have a weird thing about phone numbers and wanting to have, like, a quote-unquote good number. Nice. And, I know. I hear you. And then, like, as a sports fan... Uh, you know, I sometimes will do the same thing with like the names of certain athletes. I'm going to go, that, that sounds like a good player. Do you know what I'm right. saying? Like it has nothing to do with any, uh, objective facts of, uh, in terms of performance. It's just, if their name is a certain name, it will lead me to believe and often correctly that, uh, that they're going to be good, which is sort of strange. That's yeah. I know exactly what you mean. They're like our high school quarterback, you know, I, I'm, I mean, he was a decent player, but his name was Chris Chudzik, number 87. And it just like that just makes sense. Like, sure, yeah, he's the quarterback. Of course, it was like it was like it's like it was written. You know, it was like it was put down in a script somewhere. Right. Um, okay. So, like, what kind of kid were you? Were you were you unhappy? Were you like a, a moody kid? Or were you or were you pretty easygoing? Like, what did uh, what was it like for you when you were growing up? Uh, you know, with your mom and, and your stepdad in New Berlin. Yeah, I was like a serial only child. Um, my mom was an only child. My grandma was an only child. So, you know, we're the, my lineage is, is you know, uh, folks who's good at being alone. Um, so I mostly just, like, rode my bike around and, you know, tried not to get chased. Um, although I was just thinking today about how, um, uh, I don't, there was something about that time. I, I was born in 73, so, you know, most of my formative years were the late 70s, early 80s. And, and in the way I remember the part of Wisconsin I grew up, it was, it was all about, you know, skateboards and BMX bikes. Um, but not in like a, a cool way. Like there was, I mean, Tony Hawk like existed, but he wasn't an industry. Um, and you know, there were, there was not, and I don't think there still is like any, any sort of celebrity culture that goes with BMX bikes. Um, and it's like people made money on this, but it wasn't, it wasn't, you know, it wasn't a world attached to like corporate anything. Um, and I just remember that, that was like, it was a really pure and kind of beautiful, um, way to live when I was a kid. Just, you know. Yeah. I have a similar, uh, memory of Wisconsin. I have like really fond memories of growing up in Wisconsin and in the neighborhood that I grew up in. And there was something, uh, sort of perfect about it. And I did the same thing. Like I remember getting my first, uh, I had an executioner. That was the name of <laughs> That was the name. That's the name of my first skateboard, and then I ultimately got like a skull and sword, like Powell Peralta. Is that sure? Sure. Is that right? Yeah. No, that's uh, dead to nuts. Yeah. Yeah. Not that I was like uh, any good, or like was like I wasn't like super super into it, but I remember you know having one and having like the BMX bike and riding around and going to like they used to have motorcycle races on ice. Uh, motors, you know, I don't know if you ever did that, but. I had, a, I had a friend whose dad worked for Harley Davidson, and so we would go to these races that were conducted on frozen uh, lakes. It was strange. Oh my god, that's yeah. brilliant! Yeah. No, I my my first job was actually at a. It was it was like a perfect Wisconsin, you know, uh, company. It was a a skate shop slash BMX shop slash motocross supply store. Of course, and some bait, maybe some bait and tackle thrown in there. Ski rental, yeah, you got it. <laughs> um, no ammo, but you know, it, yeah. was, it was a nutty place. And yeah, I remember the motocross guys would be, you know, drilling wood screws into their into their tires for for ice racing. But is that what no, it was? Like, I mean, I knew they had like you know studded tires, but they would actually drive wood screws into them. 
Yeah, it was it's it was pretty insane. I mean, because you could buy them, but they cost like five hundred bucks a piece or something. Um, so you know, to to every uh, um, self reliant Wisconsinite, they think you know, oh hell, I could just take this old tire that's not any good and go to the hardware Hank and get a box of two hundred fifty wood screws for a dollar, and I'll be set. And that's it. I don't think it ever works out like that, but. Did you do any? Did you do any uh, cross country skiing when you were growing up? Was that that was sort of a thing I, I remember in Wisconsin? Lots of hockey and cross country skiing for some reason. Yeah, there it was there. I remember one like epic year of you know huge snow when I got my first set of well actually first and only set of cross country skis, um, and you know I remember distinctly like thinking if I was good enough I could actually ski up to my roof and on it, um, but you know that never happened. But, <laughs> It was one of those years, though, where there was actually enough snow, where, you know, the, the, the banks of snow just were a perfect transition into the eaves of the houses. Yeah, no, I mean, I, I do remember those kinds of winters. And I remember my dad, uh, we had a little dog, like a tiny little dog named Sammy when I was a kid. And uh, the snow was... We really so- are related. So did I. Did you really? Yeah. Weird. <laughs> well, I just remember, no, I just remember my dad when I was little taking a snowblower and uh, actually carving a maze in the oh, backyard nice. yeah and then we would just like <laughs> we would loose our dog into the maze and you know we would know he would be somewhere in there <laughs> nice yeah i had to do that not this winter this winter we had like no snow but the year before we got i don't know 100 inches or something in minnesota and i had to you know literally like excavate a path for my my poor dog um it did not go well but and you know big surprise now we've got an oval of like burnt dead grass um, just from all the happy urine. <laughs> so, uh, just to uh, to go back to your childhood a bit, you were talking about how you were you were you know uh, fleeing from uh, bullies. I guess they were on on BMX bikes. Like, were you were you bullied a lot as a kid? Um, I don't think it was personal. I just think it was what a lot of my you know neighborhood kids were were good at. Um, I think there was. I don't know. It seemed like it was a weird time. Um, I don't know, in the economy or just in, in especially not, not when I was in Grafton, but when I was in, um, New Berlin, um, that was a real, a real divide between New Berlin and West Dallas. I mean, I remember 124th street was, that was the line between Waukesha and Milwaukee County. And if you were in New Berlin, like everything was more or less okay, but you went over to West Dallas, you know, it was, it got gritty quick. Um, and I mean, there was, you know, a regular subdivision on both sides of 124th, but um, it it definitely um, took a nosedive when you went um, much beyond that instead of, you know, uh, cheery sort of scrubbed and, and anonymous strip malls. It was, you know, more like some burned out, I don't know. Uh, it seems like there was a big, like, warehouse store that they could never get the tenant to stay in or, you know, it was always one weird thing after the other. And, uh, but that was like, when I was a kid, that like, that's what was attractive, (laughs) like figuring out a way to get in, into like, you know, the weird industrial sort of oil stained heart of West Dallas. Um, (laughs) like just to explore. Yeah, I think cause you know, it was, um, for me, the, the, the suburb that New Berlin was and really still is, was just so, I don't know, um, just such a bed, bedroom community where, you know, like kids just wandered around looking for some kind of trouble to get into. And, 
you know, it wasn't like an affluent suburb where there were like trampolines and pools. Um, <laughs> and we didn't, we didn't have like sidewalks. So you rode around in the street, um, you know, just trying not to get hit by cars. And, um, but in West Dallas, well, they had sidewalks. So that was a decidedly, you know, uh, improvement. Um, but I just remember there were, there were like kids who were willing to get into, I don't know, more rewarding trouble. I remember this guy, um, he was, he was like way too old for us to be hanging around with it. I think he was like 17 and we were like 12 or 13. Um, his name was Mike Sachin and he just, he was just like, I don't know. He was a godlike figure for us. He looked like he was from, I don't know, some, some place where they had oceans. Um, and he rode a scooter and, you know, he just, he figured out ways to like, <laughs> I don't know, get stolen property for us to build things with like skateboard ramps or forts or weird stuff. Um, there was a lot of fort building in my youth. Is that still going on these days? I feel like maybe that was something like a, a 1980s Midwestern thing, maybe, or maybe not. I don't know. It seems like it. The, the kids across the street from, from our house in St. Paul have this like really intricate like and high. It's like 20 feet in the air. Um, um, just this beautiful thing. Only <laughs> it's really unfortunately finished. They, the, um, it was it's a sad story, too. The dad died, um, and he was a carpenter and contractor and all of that. Um, and I think he probably intended to, like, finish it and build a proper ladder or something but instead all they have is like a you know 20 foot extension ladder you know lashed haphazardly to the the tree um not a confidence inspiring affair <laughs> no it's terrible uh and you know like i was it's, I'm, I'm thinking back to my youth uh with regard to forts and i'm thinking of like my friends and i there was like this it was it was essentially a ditch but it was a, a, a heavily wooded ditch off of a bike path and there was kind of like a little stream running through it. Yeah, and sure. There was a lot of scrap wood around and like just loose sticks and whatever. And we sort of built a shelter and we created what we thought was something fairly uh, sophisticated. But of course it wasn't. And I just remember we called it the place. That nice. Was, and we were like, we're, you know, we would just tell each other like, yeah, I'm going to be at the place. And it's like our secret, you know, hideout or whatever. I guess kids always, yeah. kids will always do that. I think so. I think, you know, there was... We had we didn't have a place, but we had the woods, um, and which you know <laughs> resembled the woods in no meaningful way. It was just like uh, a tree a, line. Yeah, there there were some trees, you know, vaguely buffering um, an industrial space from a residential space, and then a nice creek filled with you know glowing, vaguely nuclear runoff. Um, but you know, to us, that was nature. That was awesome. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I know. I mean, I I, I always joke about this too, but like when I was a kid. Uh, the very first thing that I ever wanted to be was a garbage man. I remember like distinctly being on my bike in my neighborhood with my friends and just chasing the garbage truck and watching them, uh, crush things in the hydraulic press. And, and, uh, you know, then we, I think we, we found there was a tree line behind my buddy's house, uh, like literally just a, a you know, a line of trees. So we considered it a forest, but it was about right. fi like 15 feet in width, you know, <laughs> uh, but with some pretty tall trees and we, we sort of found a little hole and just, I remember just spending days out there when I was like, you know, five, six, seven years old, just like throwing sticks into this like pit. And that was our trash compactor. So, I mean, it's nice. like, silly kid games, you know, but that's, uh, you know, I, re I remember it being like so much fun too, you know? <laughs> so. Well, and I mean, for a kid, like hell for an adult, who is more godlike than a garbage man? I mean, they drive like these trucks that, you know, really it's just a matter of, 
um, self-control that they don't kill us all. Right. <laughs> and, and, and I mean, what happens when they stop doing their jobs? Like, you know, we're crippled. Um, like our own, you know, shit and debris just consumes us. Right. It is. I mean, it really isn't a really important job. You know, it's like it has to be done. Like, uh, I'm thinking in particular about like the spread of communicable disease and stuff, and like what a significant impact like regular trash collection had on like the history of human health. Like, that's not an exaggeration. You know? No, hell yes, they keep us from plague, man. Yeah. So I think we need to give a shout out to all the garbage men listening. You know? Right. Um, so let's get to uh, you know writing your your bookish tendencies, which I assume you had as a, as a child at some point. I mean, like, when did that start to um, you know make itself evident in you? Like, when did you start to gravitate toward books? Um, well, you know, the sort of loneliness of being an only child and a proclivity toward being bullied were you know those those were really motivating factors to get toward books. Um, I think really, though, it was super mundane, non-meaningful like or artistic um, tendencies as a kid. You know, the regular stuff. I mean, Hardy Boys, bad novelizations of movies. Um, I remember in particular, I, <laughs> I bought um, the novelization of Rambo. Um, <laughs> I don't know what's worse, like th- that I was really excited and I had high hopes for it or, or that I was let down and didn't think it was a really well-executed <laughs> novelization. Um, but for one way or the other, I found out that I was, uh, I, that I can't read while I travel. I got totally carsick and it was either the book or just reading while we were on some, you know, family trip. But, um, but anyway, I didn't really, I was you know, nowhere like a voracious reader until I think I can safely say until, you know, grad school. Um, I mean, undergrad was okay. Um, but I mostly didn't do the work and, you know, God, I wish I should have. Um, um, where, where did you go to grad? Where did you go to undergrad? I went to Marquette in Milwaukee. Oh, you did. Okay. Yeah. And it was, it was a good place to be. I really liked being, you know, I guess as a, as a kid in the suburbs, like, you know, I really had a strong desire to keep getting, you know, to the real heart of the downtown and, and Milwaukee is, you know, uh, it's right there. Um, I mean, I thought it was really cool that we'd get like panhandled on the way to class. Like that was, <laughs> you know, that was it. Yeah. Um, but I, you know, I, I mostly didn't do <laughs> like the work I should have. And, um, I was a pretty lousy student, but you know, were you, were you I, drinking a lot and doing drugs and stuff? Uh, no, not in any sort of meaningful or exciting way. Um, just, just the sort of recreational nonsense that, uh, was just kind of everywhere. But, um, no, it was, it was, uh, you know, I was waiting tables and still working at, at the bike shop in, in New Berlin. And, um, I don't know, uh, it was just kind of weird. Um, I didn't really figure out a way to make a meaningful path there. And, you know, it's, it's a long way from being any kind of art school. So it, it was, um, I don't know. I didn't, I didn't really hang out with any English majors. There wasn't a strong culture there of like, you know, um, a literary community. So by the time I got to, um, the, the MFA program I went to, uh, Ohio state, um, that was like, you know, the, the lid of the universe was taken off and it was just like, holy shit, this is amazing. You know, we can, (laughs) we can go to a bar and get a pitcher of beer and leave a nice tip and get change back from a five and talk about like poetry and fiction writing, um, you know, while playing pool or cards or whatever. It was like, 
it was just this unbelievable intersection of um, like the real world, not, you know, the, the sort of effete stuff that um, poets and writers get, you know, um, sort of cast on all the time, but also that literary world of, you know, where anything's possible and, you know, you're, you're talking about art and, you know, eternity and love and faith and all that. Yeah, well, and it's something I you you must have had an inclination towards these things when you were an undergrad. I mean, you, you if you applied to graduate school, you must have uh, had some instinct for it, correct? I mean, or was it? Something? Yeah, uh, it was definitely the only, the only thing that that um, I was good at. Um, and I mean, I remember, I, I don't know. I think probably like a lot of people, I was just good enough to stay in school and you know not get distinction nor you know the attention of uh, academic counseling or something like that um i mean it, it wasn't hard to just kind of stay in the middle um and then i randomly um signed up for a creative writing class um it was a fiction workshop with cj rival um and he was great he was he was an awesome teacher um and i i, I just got to see him again after my book came out um when i did a reading in Milwaukee and that was, you know, just, it doesn't get better than that, you know? Um, but then, um, I also had, uh, just a random, um, adjunct instructor there, which I didn't know what that meant. I didn't know that, um, there was a distinction between like full faculty and, and, um, you know, non, um, but this guy, Jim, Jim Balistrieri was his name. And I, I've been a long time since I've been in touch with him, but, um, he really put the, the bug in my ear about um, what I think I'm, I'm, you know, best at these days, which is more of the, the nonfiction stuff. Um, and I still remember, I don't, I don't remember what the prompt was, but um, he, he wanted us to, like, write about an obsession. Um, and, you know, I think it was just his way of, like, encouraging us to get weird. Um, and for whatever reason, um, I... <laughs> I, I was able and willing to answer that call. Um, I had a pair of, uh, God, they were like what, Timberland shoes, but they were, they were, they had like lug soles and they were wingtips, but they were like suede, but they were also waterproof. Um, and I like, they just kind of perplexed me, um, that, that, you know, this like intersection of, um, dapperness with hiking ability with, you know, the ever-present need to protect one's foot from water. <laughs> right, um, right. There was just something about, like, the, the the ability to find wonder in that, like, you know, totally lame subject. Um, I, you know, I thought, wow, hell, like, I'm good at this. Um, and But, of course, that's, you know, just like my mom's, you know, hippie floral tendencies like that's not not exactly a long line of people waiting to pay you to be good at something like that right right well but you know the world's so weird because there's certain things like it you know i don't think that necessarily the money follows value all the time you know like there you can get paid a lot of money to do some pretty uh dumb stuff in this culture and then you can um you know you know uh, pull your hair out and um you know, take years off of your life trying to write a book about the meaning of it all or whatever, it might, you know, whatever it might be. And, and you'll get paid peanuts for that, even if you do it successfully, you know, a lot right. of the time. So, I mean, it's, I don't know, the world's a weird place that way. It's true, man. It's true. So when you were, uh, you know, when you were at Ohio State, um, you know, obviously that was like a, a creative writing MFA type program. Yeah. And did you know, I mean, at that point, were you thinking to yourself, I'm going to get into this? Um, obviously as a writer, but also on the academic side, like was teaching always part of the equation for you or was that something that you sort of came to 
when you realized, uh, you know, the, the mathematics of the situation. <laughs> right. No, uh, I had never, uh, even the vaguest prospect of um, going into education um, as a career. Um, you know, I thought, like, like you, something with heavy equipment would have been much cooler, you know, garbage truck, front end loader, <laughs> driver, something like that. No, I wanted to, I wanted to be a long haul trucker as, like, as recently as when I was, like, you know, 21 years old. And I remember, I, I remember telling my parents that. Uh, I just like graduated college and I was like, I think I want to do that. And I just remember them being like, you've got to be kidding me. We just like paid for you to go to school. You know, <laughs> like you're going to do something else. Uh, I just remember like there was a look of horror, you know, not that there's anything wrong with driving a truck, but, uh, no, absolutely. Uh, I just remember there's that there's a great, uh, John McPhee essay about long haul truckers. Um, that, you know, every time I read it, I, I, I teach it, you know, maybe once a year or so. And, um, it it totally makes me not I don't know like pre nostalgic or something like for a career I wish I have had or yeah something like that. well the, no there was just like I mean I think I still have this but it's just it's diminished with age a little bit and 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 it's been I think suppressed by circumstance but like I remember very distinctly at that point in my life like just wanting to be on the move I loved being on the road and like seeing the country. I mean, it's just, I think it's a very natural impulse for uh, young people you know and for people who um, I don't know. I guess people who like to write or people, some people just have the travel bug. I definitely have it. Absolutely. And, and I, I mean, I feel the same way. And I, from, you know, the day I could drive, I, I would make that pilgrimage from Milwaukee to, to Denver to see my grandparents and just, you know, bum around Colorado for a while. And, uh, you know, I'd go by myself and, um, I remember I had this like really ornate system of, um, like how much I would just like kind of be, driving you know no no radio no books on tape um but just you know windows down sort of be in the place and i i try to take the back roads as much as possible and um i still you know have a great fondness for for that experience and and i think there's something about too the the um getting to know the landscape like that um there's just nothing there's no way to do it other than you know by car or bike or something um like to be able to tell the difference, especially, you know, in, in states where they're not known for distinctions in their landscape. I mean, the, what's the difference between eastern Iowa and western Iowa, you know? Right. Actually, actually, it's pretty profound, you know, but only if you, like, recalibrate your level of sensitivity to, to you know, what it demands. Yeah. Well, no, I mean, I feel like that when I go traveling and I'm in a city that I've never been to before, I always like to rent a bike, you know, a bike if I can, just to, like, pedal around because... Uh, I feel like I see it like so much more, uh, and get such a different feel for the place than if I'm like on a subway or, uh, Absolutely. Even, even in a car or a taxi or something like it's just a totally different experience and it gives you that much more freedom. You know, you can kind of duck down weird streets and check things out that you might not otherwise see. Absolutely. Yeah. I went to, um, New York back in January, something I was only there for 48 hours, but, um, I think I, between running and walking, put on something like 24 miles um just because i just couldn't stop i just there's just so much to take in and you know every block has a universe within it yeah i mean and, and did you uh did you say you biked there did, in new york city or did you no no i just went for long runs okay couple, i was gonna say that's a tough city to bike in um i bet it is it's yeah a tough city to run in hell yeah right <laughs> exactly exactly most of the most of the running was just in central park but even that that's so much bigger than you know uh, I don't know, our, my imagination anyway, um, creates it. But it's, 
you know, it's like seven or eight miles around the perimeter. Yeah. I've ridden a bike around that. That's what I do when I go to New York is I'll rent a bike right there on like 57th street. I think there's a little shop, but, um, so you, you said that you run, are you a regular runner? Uh, is this part of your ritual? Like I know so many riders who have this, like whether it's running or some other exercise, but is that part of like how you, um, like mood regulate or is that how you keep your energy up to write early in the morning or something like that? Or is it something that you do more sporadic? Yeah. You know, I, I used to, I used to be a semi-professional smoker. Um, since, since that has gone away, I've like, you know, dumped, dumped all that into, um, it's pretty long distance running. Um, so I've, I don't know, lately been doing uh, a lot of it, but, but definitely, you know, with, without that, yeah, you don't, I'm not a very pleasant person to be around. No, it's weird. You know, it's cause I used to smoke too. And like, sometimes I'll, you know, just to be completely honest, I'll still sneak one every once in a while, but not you know, like, like just a couple times a year, you know, it's not like, right. uh, I feel like it's relatively, uh, under wraps, but, uh, and I, and I will always feel like extremely guilty after I do that. I have that going yeah. for me too, but yeah. uh, when it comes to quitting like that, like, cause I think smoking and writing is something, you know, those two behaviors can be, uh, what is it? Synchronous. There can be a synergy there. And I find that like, if you try to quit the smoking, if you don't have something to replace it with, uh, like of equal or greater intensity, it gets fairly difficult. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I'm so grateful that just by luck and, um, you know, living with my wife who, who, you know, never really cared for smoking, in a you know, in a meaningful way. Um, you know, we, it, we never did it in the house. So I never had that, you know, like smoke while writing habit and the people I know who do, you know, they mostly still smoke. Yeah. You know? No, I, I always think of Vonnegut he's just the most obvious. Like he was just constantly like smoking while eating, you know? <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> um, so let's talk about Salt Lake city because that's where, uh, you know, sugar house takes place and that's where, uh, you went to get your PhD. Is that correct? Yeah, that's right. So you were transitioning, like, were you all the like when you're getting your your MFA, you're obviously writing and and trying to write books, and then you go on to the PhD. Like at that point, what was the higher motivating factor uh, with respect to continuing your education? Was it finding more time to write uh, and not really having an idea of what else to do, or um, was it like I really want to teach and I want to make sure that I can uh, at a high level? So I think I should get my my doctorate. Yeah, it was specious kind of nexus of motivators. I mean, you know, in part, um, I, I don't know. I kind of wanted to be um, in a more professional situation because, you know, I mean, just about everybody's got an MFA these days, uh, and it's so difficult to make, you know, a, a meaningful distinction as far as if you put yourself in the, the mindset of an administrator or something like that. Um, who are, they're just really hoping to say, yes, you know, 99 or 100% of our faculty have PhDs. Um, and, uh, you know, they don't really care to put an asterisk by that. Actually, an MFA is a terminal degree. <laughs> right. But um, so that was, you know, total business kind of decision. And also the, the, the notion that, well, here's something I can vaguely control. I mean, if I get into a program, you know, I know, you know, more or less what it takes to, to go through it and to, you know, at least, you know, get the degree. Um, and for me, it's like it's I've never had a, dis, a difficult time realizing like, well, you know, education, if you put yourself in the right mindset, is a lot like entertainment. Um, and, you know, hell, there are countries that still exist in the world where, you know, you could get killed you know, getting a good education. Um, and so for me, I've always been, 
you know, at least <laughs> appreciative enough of that liberty to, to think well, it's better than working. Right. Um, yeah. You know? uh, and so, you know, that was another thing, I guess, that just, just trying to, um, I guess, see myself through the, the, the path of um, English, because I, I had done, you know, the, the MFA. I actually did an MA, too, but that was sort of horrible. Um, really competitive, nasty, sort of lots of infighting and c- competition for, you know, funding and all that crap. And, um, and anyway, um, uh, there seemed to be a need to, like, put some kind of cap on it. Um, and the PhD is a pretty obvious place to do it, I guess. Um, but, you know, the deciding factor was learning that you could do a creative dissertation um, and, you know, write a book of whatever, short stories or essays or a novel. Um, and uh, the other huge factor, though, was, you know, uh, it's in Salt Lake, and I didn't really know anything about the culture there. I mean, zero. Um, but, you know, you visit once, and it's like, holy shit. This place is, it's a city. I mean, you know, not like to anybody who's ever been to L.A. or New York, but, you know, to somebody from Milwaukee, it looks every bit like a city needs to, but it's in the mountains. Right. I mean, they're right there. Like, it's not none of the tedious, you know, you live in Denver and you want to go skiing or hiking, you know, in whatever, like a, a not just the foothills, you know, you got to gear up for a two and a half hour drive or something. Um, and I was... uh Oh, and the other factor was, you know, I had spent two years doing um, adjunct work where I was teaching, you know, like four and five classes a semester for, you know, less than the gas money it took to get me to these far-flung campuses. So, Right. I've been through that. You know, it's like those adjuncts don't get paid a whole lot. <laughs> no, and they get so little respect. And, um, I mean, it's such a just messed up situation because you know they do so much of the teaching in colleges these days and they they just are you know basically like they get paid less than child laborers in Taiwan that's not even that's not even I mean it's it's not even an exaggeration you know especially when you when you start to parse it out with regard to like the uh, outside of the classroom work the grading of the papers and doing all that stuff like it's an enormous time suck you know it requires a lot oh absolutely and if you factor in like what you know how much they are out of pocket in student loan, or just um, just the debt of you know time spent on their degree and everything. Um, and there's really you know other than I don't know what appears in, in administrators' eyes. I mean, what's the difference between you know an adjunct and a, a regular faculty person? This budget. <laughs> yeah, just criminal. So, what about Salt Lake City? Like, tell me a little bit about your adjustment to that, and then try to try to you know from there try to give us like a bit of a backstory with regard to your book. Sure. Yeah. Um, I think on on my first sort of glance at Salt Lake was um, well, kind of like we were talking. You know, I like to walk and run and stuff, and um, I went to uh, the Writers at Work conference there. Um, it was while you know I was a poor adjunct and all that, so trying to save money everywhere. Um, bought the plane ticket, but thought, hell, you know, it looks like <laughs> it looks like this campus is um, really close. And I don't I don't remember. I got like a cab um, to downtown or something because um, I wanted to just sort of see that. But then I thought, well, it looks on this map that it's only eight blocks from downtown to was Westminster College, which was where the the conference was. Um, and 
and the first thing you realize about Utah is like the scale is like totally out of proportion. Um, instead of regular blocks, which I don't know, like in a normal American city, isn't it like 20 is a mile or something? Um, in in Utah, in Salt Lake anyway, uh, I swear like three blocks is a mile. So I had, you know, I got there in the middle of summer. It's 95 degrees, but it's zero humidity. So, you know, it's hot, but you're not, you know, you're not sweating through your eyeballs like you do in the Midwest when it's, you know, the heat index is 80% or something. Um, and so I didn't realize how far everything was away, how hot it was and how dehydrated I was getting. And so by the time I got, you know, all the way to this, this campus for this writing conference, um, I was just a wreck, totally dehydrated, um, but had never been so before. So I didn't know what I was experiencing. Um, you were essentially so, dying, like right there. Is that what was Yeah, but, <laughs> and I just thought I needed beer. Um, <laughs> right. And oddly enough, that's, that is not a cure for dehydration. Um, even, in, even in Salt Lake where, you know, if you just buy beer at a grocery store, it's 3-2. Um, and so that, that was my introduction um, <laughs> to, to Utah. Um, but after after a little bit of acclimation, the, probably the next you know big shock was uh, just just the culture of the the LDS you know Mormon Church. Uh, I mean, I got nothing against it; they've never done anything bad to me. Um, but it's just it's so different if you haven't experienced it sort of at full throttle like you do in Salt Lake City. Um, like, give where, me some give me some concrete examples. Like, what what tangibly about being there among, you know, what I, I don't even know what the percentage is in terms of uh, church members to non-church members in that city, but i got to imagine it's like 80-20 or something. Well, actually, it's in Salt Lake proper, it's only like 55, um, or 55% are, or, or right around there, are LDS. Um, but, but what you don't get is the fact that everywhere else, everywhere else in the state, it's like 90%. Um, and the other 50% in Salt Lake City, they all used to be Mormon. Okay. Or, yeah. You no, know, forty percent of them did. Right. So, so it's it's a whole culture, you know, whether they're for it or not, um, they're they're all of it. Um, and if you're just you know a slack ass you know semi Protestant from the Midwest, like there's there's no sort of cheat sheet that you can just look at and say, oh, that's what they mean when they say ward house or um, bishop, like or or what was the other thing. Um, Gentile, like everybody who's not Mormon is a Gentile. <laughs> so, a uh, little bit of a, a transition there. Um, and I mean, the, the other thing is that, um, like the the church news, is is not you know only news within a given parish or ward or whatever. It's like that's that's newspaper news, that's TV news, um, and so it's it's just kind of always inundating your life unless you, you know, find a way to, you know, spend a lot of time in the mountains or uh, bars work too. But, <laughs> right. Uh, another, another nice place to, to hide away. Right. So what about uh, this crack house? You know, talk about that a little bit. How did you come to buy uh, a former crack house? <laughs> yeah, it seemed, I mean, isn't that what we're supposed to do? Um, <laughs> I don't know. It was it was a nutty year. So so we moved there. I think it was 2001, and we lived uh, in an apartment um, in a neighborhood neighborhood called the Avenues, which is um, like 
Salt Lake is a very like vertically oriented city. It's like if you're in the valley, it's just you know dead pan flat. But then if you go not even outside of the city, but but to the, its perimeter, you know every block you go has like 250 vertical feet gained. Um, and so the avenues is one of these really steep pitched um, uh, neighborhoods. And that's we we found a place on I Street, way the heck, you know, and well about halfway up the Avs. Um, but it was the same neighborhood, or well, depending on how you parse it, it was either the same or adjacent to the neighborhood where uh, Elizabeth Smart was taken from, um, you know, abducted from her bedroom window, all that stuff. Um, and she was still missing at this point. Um, and so add to that the fact that one night um, all of my wife's car windows were shot out. Add to that the fact that like the guy who lived next to us was you know in constant like and this is a duplex apartment deal um, and he was constantly being assaulted by his you know former girlfriend. She he was an artist and she'd like you know pour like uh, paint thinner on his on his work and set it on fire. Um, and it's, then it's a passionate relationship right there. Yeah, you know, decidedly one way, but you know, passion was there. <laughs> um, in an unfortunate, unfortunate way. Um, and then the other fun thing was uh, we were, what was it? The, there were, the neighbors around us were finding like, like cat viscera sort of strewn in the shrubbery. Um, and people thought there was some like, you know, satanic, you know, weird thing going on, um, you know, that involved pet mutilation or whatnot. And anyway, so add to that the fact that like, it seemed like everybody we knew um, in, in Salt Lake at the time, they, they already owned their own house. They like, you know, these people were like not just itinerant renters like us, but they, they lived there. Um, and it was a time in the market when, you know, you just saw people, they would buy a house and then the next day it was worth 10 grand more than they paid for it. Um, and it just, you know, in that sort of hysteria of that kind of market, it just seemed so urgent that you'd be a part of it. Um, and you know, we weren't really ready for it in so many ways. I mean, we'd never owned anything more significant than, you know, like a crappy old Volkswagen. Um, and neither of us was uh, very fiscally sort of, you know, <laughs> good. Um, but we thought, oh, whatever, everybody's getting loans these days. It won't be a problem. Um, but it ended up, you know, being pretty challenging and, um, the only way we could get it done was by getting my grandfather to co-sign on this. Um, and he was happy to do so, but it was at a time in his life when we really didn't like want any affiliation with him or what he had going on. Um, my grandmother had just died, and she was very much like the heart and soul of our family. And after she died, it came out that he had had like a a lifetime's, you know, series of sordid affairs with, you know, women of various positions. Um, and the most recent of which was one of my grandmother's nurse aides, oh, God. Um, who he was still carrying on with, uh, as we euphemistically put it. Um, so he's quite the ladies man. I mean, like this, he's a, he's a seducer, you know, <laughs> like, I don't, I don't know how he does it, but you know, I, I mean, maybe you do. He's he's from Indiana. He's just got <laughs> that's right. He's just got that swagger. That Hoosier swagger.
That's right. <laughs> God. Where, where, think, wait, where in Indiana is he from? Uh, well, let's see. They, you know, actually I misspoke. He, he, he spent most of his um, growing up and sort of like college time. That's where he was a doctor and he went to the IU med school. Um, uh, so Bloomington. Yeah, and my grandma spent her childhood in Pendleton, um, just northeast, I believe, yeah. of, uh, of Indianapolis. Okay. Um, but, uh, yeah, they definitely, they, they call Indiana home, but my, my grandmother was born in um, Toledo, and my grandfather was born in St. Joe, Missouri. Um, but, Anyway, for for whatever various set of reasons, yeah, he thought he was a real lady killer. I mean, liked to wear leather blazers, and he had not one but two diamond pinky rings. Whoa! Yeah, heavy duty bling. I mean, he he only see that kind of stuff on like Guy Fieri now. <laughs> anyway, um, so he it, so he co-signed the lease or the uh, the the loan for you. Yeah, he did, and he gave us a, a down payment. And I mean, he was really generous, but it was, you know, God, it was like we wanted him dead. I mean, we didn't we didn't want to take his money or need his help, um, but we couldn't have done it without him. Um, and I, you know, ultimately, uh, I don't think it would have been, <laughs> for better or for worse, as interesting an experience as it was, had it not been so complicated by you know uh, the help we needed to to get it done. So, and then talk about the house itself. Uh, it was a beauty. Yeah, it, uh, it was like, you know, like most of the houses in that area. It was, you know, like 100 years old, built in the early 1900s. Um, and this was in, so Sugar House, is, it's the name of the neighborhood. Um, and really, there are like two viable neighborhoods for like liberals to live in in Utah and, and still feel like they're in America. And, you know, the Avenues is one and Sugar House is the other. Um, and it's this really cool, um, you know, semi-bohemian, semi-working class um, neighborhood where uh, they've got nice wide streets and good parks and, you know, little lawns, you know, that the houses are far enough apart where you got a little privacy, but not so far apart where you feel like, you know, your neighbors are, you know, secretly building a munitions stash or something. <laughs> right. Um, but, not arming themselves. But, you know, the house in question, like the owner totally, he seemed like absolutely like this weird militia guy. Um, it's this like little mustachioed man named Stanley who drove like, you know, a bunch, he had like a bunch of cars um, and they were, you know, one more nefarious than the next. Um, and all of them had like, like former wire hangers serving as like meaningful binders to various parts of the car, you know, like the bumper or something. Um, and he, the, he, like, what was it? His grandparents built the house, his parents, and he grew up in it. Um, and, and, you know, he had lived in it all his life. Um, but in the last 10 years, he had moved out and been renting it. And somewhere in there, um, you know, <laughs> things went dark. Um, and, uh, it's like breaking bad, you know? Yeah, completely. Um, and fortunately, you know, not like, God, what, what are they making? Aren't they making meth on that show? Yeah, they're cooking meth. Um, and I think, I, I think this was not like a, a like cocaine, you know, industrial production kind of area, but rather just um, what, what we gather is that the, the last renter or maybe the one before the last renter um, 
you know, was up to no good in a meaningful and, you know, non-productive way. Um, but, but there had been a two-year space when the house was vacant. Um, this owner was trying to sell it for two years. And, and that, in a market where, you know, typically, you know, a house would go on the market, and if it was, you know, reasonably priced, it would sell in a day or two. Um, and especially in this neighborhood, which was one of the most, you know, desirable for people who wanted to live in Salt Lake. Um, I mean, we got two other houses bought out from under us that we put on bids, you know, practically the day it went on the market. Um, and then to just stumble upon this house, um, it seemed like a dream because it was like, it was definitely a house we had our eye on. It had actually like, um, you know, that sort of cream city, Milwaukee brick. Um, it was, it was made of that sort of light colored brick. Um, just, you know, had reasonable kind of curb appeal. Um, and we, we'd sort of vaguely kept our eye on it cause it had, you know, um, it's a sugar has a pretty small neighborhood, so you can really, um, do like I did and kind of case the place to and from work and school every day. Um, and just, you know, keep your eye out for new, uh, for sale signs. And, uh, <laughs> that's what we did. And one day, you know, there's the little red sign in the window and I called the guy and, you know, I'll never forget the smell, man. I that's was what I was going to, I was just going to say, that was like my, like my, the description of the smell of the place is, is, uh, both hilarious and stomach turning, you know? Oh yeah, it was awful. And I think, you know, my, my poor sweet editor, uh, Adrian Berger at, at Houghton Mifflin, um, you know, really reined me back on that one, even though <laughs> it's, it's still, it seems like it's over the top, but I mean, you know, olfaction is a really powerful sense. I mean, like, and, and it's not one that you can reason with. So when you smell something like that and, you know, at the time the house was totally sealed up, windows were closed and like painted shut so that to go into this place, I mean, it just smelled like bad takeout, low industrial port at, you know, a low tide industrial port. Um, I mean, it just, it was, there was no correlate, you know, in, in normal human experience for what that smelled like. Um, and just no way to reason with it, you know. Um, but at the same time, like it was, it was kind of a blank slate. I mean, he was, <laughs> he was like, uh, fixing it up himself, but in this, I mean, to say he didn't have taste is to, um, I don't know, say that it, its absence would go unnoticed. I mean, instead of not doing harmful things or just unfortunate things, he was like painting every surface with, um, like heavy duty, um, high gloss automotive paint. Uh, <laughs> he was putting up like, you know, the wood veneer, you know, paneling on every surface of the kitchen, including the appliances. Um, it just, if, if, if a turn could be made, he invariably, you know, went the wrong way. Um, and he kind of threatened me. He said, you know, um, I know what I'm asking is fair for this, but until I get it, I'm going to keep fixing it up myself. <laughs> it drives a hard bargain. Seriously. So, um, so at what point did you know you had a book? Like, do you know what I'm saying? Like, I feel like a lot of times writers, uh, have an instinct for a story, you know, and, and they know when they've got something that is either, uh, an experience that they can somehow package into a novel or a work of fiction or, or into a work of nonfiction. Like at what point did it occur to you that like, this is, this is material that, that is book worthy. I, I was really pretty oblivious, um, which, you know, is, is something I'm kind of good at, I think, but not, <laughs> I don't really cultivate it. Um, but, um, I didn't know, 
that there was anything going on that that I would write about at all um, uh, until I was taking, you know, uh, it was, so we bought the house in July, um, started fixing it up. We thought it was going to take, you know, two, three weeks to, you know, resurface every floor, (laughs) paint every room, you know, fix the windows, fix the foundation. Um, I mean, we had like, if we had been able to do it every day, um, all day, we still had three months of work, which is what it really ended up taking. Um, and so classes started, I was enrolled in, um, Robin Hemley's, uh, creative nonfiction workshop. Um, and it was really the first time since undergrad, um, and, and one other in, in, at Ohio state, I took a class with Bill Rohrbach that was great, but, um, but different. And, and when I got to Robin's, um, I don't know why, but, um, I volunteered to turn something in first. Um, and, it never occurred to me that I didn't have, you know, anything to write about other than, you know, a, a recently dead grandmother. And it just seemed like, well, that's what everybody writes essays about. So I'm going to have to stretch it here. Um, and I just kind of put it off and put it off until, you know, it was the Sunday before I had to turn it in the next day. And I literally had to shove, you know, power tools and paint samples and like scraps of wood off of my desk in order to find a place to put my laptop down. I was like, oh, I guess I could write about this. Um, it probably will suck, but it's, you know, um, just the day before I had attended a, a hardwood floor laying workshop um, in one of these, like, you know, home renovation warehouses. And it was just an absolute pageant of emasculation. <laughs> it was, right. It was so awful. Um, and uh, and that's, where, that's where it started. And um, it, I thought it was going to be kind of like a series of, you know, essays or something like that. Um, but I, I got some good advice early on that, you know, the the least sexy thing to a, an editor, you know, is like a collection of essays. Yeah. Um, and so uh, I, I, I really worked. I was probably about halfway through um, a manuscript of, of, you know, just essays when, when I realized, you know, I, I wanted to make it a book and not just... Um, you know, something that I could put covers around and hope it, it collected them somehow. Yeah. And then what about the publication process? Like you finished it? I mean, did you finish the, the full book and then go out with it? Or did you at some point do a proposal based on what you already had? You know, I never did a proposal. Um, I think, uh, <laughs> you know, as, as, as a just short story and essay writer um, of the literary stripe you're just you're so used to your full work being rejected it seems like <laughs> right. it's, it's such a disappointment to just get a proposal i rejected. was going to say why deny yourself that experience i mean for goodness Absolutely. sake spending you know 90 hours on something so that you can never get paid for it or in any way you know reach readers yeah um it was the the process was um it was really frustrating at first i had some good agent recommendations from friends um, and I was really patient with that and, you know, but nothing came out of it. Um, and then finally, um, after maybe a year of that, um, my good friend, um, novelist and short story writer, uh, Bruce Mallhart, um, he said, you know, why don't I talk to my editor and see if she can recommend, um, some, some good agents that she knows, maybe some young hungry ones or something like that. Um, and you know, um, she was kind enough to, to produce a, a, a little list of like sweetly annotated um, agents who, who, you know, given a, a sample of work I showed her, she thought might be interested. Um, and so I sent out queries and all that stuff to, to those people. 
um, and heard, you know, mostly um, negatively back um, from from them. But but uh, after it seemed like way too much time had passed, um, out of the blue, one one bit, um, and it was uh, Jim Rutman at, at Sterling Ward, and he was he like he called me, he said, you know, this is probably premature. I'm halfway through your manuscript, but I really love it. Um, so let me finish, and I'll call you back. And I thought for sure, like that's just the kiss of death, right? Like I'll never hear from this guy again. Um, but but instead, he he called back in a, you know a couple of days, and the first thing he wanted to know was, uh, so has Adrian seen this? The the editor who had recommended him to me. Um, I thought, oh no no, you know this is I mean Adrian Broder. This is like the the you know big editor at Zoetrope. Um, you know, she's she's a she's a fiction editor. Um, I don't think she'll she'll want anything to do with this. Um, and he said, "Let's let's show it to Adrian." And so we we showed it to her and a few other people. And um, long story short, was she took it. So it was kind of surreal. I mean, you know, the kind of like stroke of luck that um, I, I don't know. It, there was so much persistence involved, but when it really came down to it, there was so much luck also that <laughs> I love hearing it. I love hearing that. I, I totally agree. Um, not not on your behalf, but I'm just saying it in general. You know how much of a factor luck is in life. And I was I was saying this to a friend just today uh, that it seems uh, undeniable to me how much luck and how much dumb luck. You know, like it's. It, I think that adjective can be important too. Uh, because it, you know it plays such a role, but I think that maybe the healthy approach uh, to existence is to pretend that it doesn't, and that it's actually all cause and effect. Do you know what I'm saying? Like, I do. Because if you if you if I sit there and I go, it's all dumb luck, then that's sort of paralyzing, um, and it leads me to believe that there's not much that my behavior can do to affect a situation, or at least that it, it, it diminishes it. But uh, well, no, it's. If you never go to a casino, you're never going to win a you know jackpot. I mean, you've got to you've got to like put yourself in luck's way. That's right. But but I do think it's true though that it, you know there's there's only so much you can do, um, especially with the publishing industry. I mean, you know, Lord knows what what goes on um, in those meetings or behind those doors. Um, and my whole thing is just just try to be a nice guy. You know, just like. Um, try to be who you are normally and you know so it's not like there there's any question that you know i'm not a new yorker and not like some savvy you know publishing tycoon or something um i just feel like just stay stay who you are and try to keep it real um and that you know it'll happen or it won't but um chances are you didn't have anything to do with it and shouldn't take it personally if it goes you know well or poorly right well, I, I can't tell you how much fun it's been. I appreciate uh, the time, and I congratulate you on uh, Sugar House. It's, it's, it's really funny, and I hope that it does, uh, you know, big sales. Thanks, man. It's been great to talk to you, Brad. All right, that's the program. That is Matthew Bott. Go get Sugar House. That is his memoir. It is out there now from Houghton Mifflin Harcourt. You can find him on the web at MatthewCBott.com. You can find him on the Facebook, or go to Twitter and check out at MattCBott. I just can't resist. It's Bat. Matt C. Bat. Matt C. Bot. This show has a website. It's otherpeoplepod.com. It has a Twitter feed at otherpeoplepod. I have a Twitter feed at Brad Listy. And uh, do you really need me to say this every episode? We've done 100 shows, folks. Maybe it's time for me to stop this madness. Uh, if you want to email me and let me know your thoughts, the address is letters at otherpeoplepod.com. Thank you to Kill Rockstars for all the great music. Be sure to check out killrockstars.com. And it is late. 
I am not caffeinated. I am at uh, dangerously low caffeine levels at this point. Any energy that you might detect in my voice, I want to warn you, it is all dangerously tenuous. I am operating on fumes, and at any moment, I could implode. Please remember that Galileo played the lute, and Borges married his second wife at the age of 86. Uh, It has been good to be with you. It has been good to be here. Thank you for listening. I think I'm going to go to bed. I think I'm going to fall face down into my bed. I've had enough of this day. I'm hoping that there will be another day tomorrow. And uh, that's sort of strange to think about the way each day unfolds. 24 hours, a neat little package, day after day, one after the next. You can actually do the math and you can actually sit there with a calculator and figure out how many days you've been alive. I've never done that. It feels like something I should probably do. It feels like something I should know or keep track of somehow. I have no idea how many days I've been alive on this planet. Uh, Quick calculation, uh, over 10,000, I think. Am I doing that right? Maybe closer to 15? I have no idea. I'm going to bed. Is that okay with you? Do I have permission?